So this morning I'm going to introduce the sutta and just remind us about what mindfulness is, because we hear it so much that I kind of forget, I think. And then get us going on the practice that we'll do in the shrine room. This might be a little bit longer than most morning sessions, just because we're trying to get oriented to the whole thing. So if it's a little bit longer, don't worry, we're not going to spend loads of time in this kind of talky format on this retreat, yeah? So we'll just get everything set up today. So the Anapanasati Sutta that we'll be using means mindfulness while breathing in and out. And everyone here has been introduced to the mindfulness of breathing, the four-stage practice. And we can think of what we're doing on this retreat with this practice as expanding from that base of that practice. So you don't need to throw that out at all. You know, it's just going to help you take that relationship with the breath you've got for this lifetime that you can remember anyway. Maybe some of you remember the breath from a previous lifetime. But just work with that a little bit more in different ways maybe that are helpful. The Thai teacher, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, who wrote that book, Mindfulness with Breathing, says that actually the meaning of Anapanasati is quite broad. To recall anything with sati, or mindfulness, while breathing in and breathing out. So, to recall anything, to be aware of anything, as we're breathing in and out. And for this life, we're breathing in and out all the time, right? And then one day, that'll be it. There'll be one out breath, and we'll see what happens after that. So, the sutta, the Anapanasati Sutta, is a record of the teaching on the mindfulness of breathing... Uh, mindfulness while breathing in and out, on a certain occasion. It seems as if he'd already taught this practice before this occasion, because in the way the sutta is set up, some people are already doing the practice. He's with what we can estimate to be about 400 of his disciples on a rainy season retreat for three months. Yeah, so that might make this retreat seem quite small, actually. It's with 400 people. And it's really quite moving. We'll hear the whole setup tonight in the shrine room, but... They've been meditating for three months, and he's so moved by the sincerity of their practice. He tells them how sincere their practice is and how stunning that is, really, that he just decides to stay an extra month. It's worth it to stay with these people an extra month and give them more teachings. And more people come because he's staying this extra month, and they come from all around the country for this extra month of teaching. And on that extra month of teaching, he decides to give them this teaching on working with the breath. And at this point, we can imagine there's about a thousand people have come to hear this fourth month teaching. So that's the context. The other thing that's really lovely about it is that he's teaching this particular sutta at night. Sometimes he would teach at night if the moon was bright enough. So they're all under the moonlight, a thousand people just getting this instruction. Really beautiful scene, yeah? And often in Buddhism, there's this evocation that we're under the same moon. It's like that teaching is that close to us, that just like we're under the moon now, not that far away. These teachings were given under a moon 2,500 years ago, not that far away. There's trees that are older than that. So in a way, we can find the closeness of this teaching. So that's why we've got Shakyamuni quite prominent as an element of the retreat. Just not to forget, these are words of an enlightened being just trying to convey to people. It's very direct teaching, trying to convey to them how they can liberate their mind and get access to that state that he's been able to find access to. And he's just trying to say it quite directly to them in what boils down to 16 instructions from the Buddha. 
And what amazes me is that when I practice this, is that we can practice it just, just as if we were right there with them, receiving that instruction. I had a little glimpse of this. There was a cultural evening and someone was playing a piece. I forget who it was. It might have been Schubert. I can't remember. And someone was flipping the sheet music for him. So he was using the sheet music a little bit. And I thought, it's amazing. He's creating this whole world. He's accessing this world of experience, which is not maybe the exact same experience as the composer had, but the composer was alluding to some realm of experience. And then hundreds of years later, through these notes, was entering into that experience. Yeah, through the sheet music. So in a way, I think it's kind of similar. We've got these 16 instructions, and it's not just these dry dots on a paper. It's actually what it's trying to point us to. Okay, so the thing he says before he gives the instruction is, mindfulness of in and out breathing when developed and pursued is of great fruit, of great benefit. Mindfulness of in and out breathing when developed and pursued brings the four foundations of mindfulness to perfection. The four foundations of mindfulness, when developed and pursued, bring the seven factors of awakening to their culmination. The seven factors of awakening, when developed and pursued, perfect clear insight and liberation. So all that means is practicing these 16 steps gets this whole thing rolling. I had quite a strong feeling with us here particularly, people have already been practicing. There's already something rolling in all of you. There's already quite strong momentum in your practice of the Dharma. And these 16 contemplations just join that. There's some momentum here, quite strong, I think, rolling towards liberation or open-heartedness or whatever you would call it. I mean, traditionally enlightenment, right? But whatever, however we relate to that. So basically, this means that practicing Anapanasati is a means to complete enlightenment. And as such, it's both a calming or samatha practice and what could be called an insight or vipassana bhavana practice, yeah? The, help us to develop wisdom. Okay, so the heart of the sutta contains the actual step-by-step -step instructions. So sort of beforehand, we have the whole scene that I've been describing, and then we get down to the pith teaching in the middle. And the 16 contemplations are a structure for Dharma Vachaya, which is one of these seven factors of awakening. We know that there's the possibility of doing some investigative work in meditation or Vipassana Bhavana work. But sometimes it's not that clear how to do it, you know, so we go trying to investigate our experience, the nature of reality, and, and we can feel a bit lost in what we're doing. I think sometimes it can feel like I'm not quite sure how to approach this. So the 16 steps just give us things we can actually do, quite specific instructions, so then we can relax about what we should be doing or could be doing and just kind of enjoy what we're learning from it. So they're practical, actionable meditation instructions very directly, which is kind of unusual in the Pali Canon. In the original record of the Buddha's life, we get a lot more about the story. We, we don't get that many places where it's just like a direct set of instructions for meditation that you could just do. But in this sutta, we have that. And they're also a description of a process by which the awareness of the breath sets in motion is kind of unfolding, moving towards liberation, clarity, kindness, those kinds of ways of being. The instructions are organized by the four foundations of mindfulness, or satipatthanas, which are the body, sometimes translated as kaya, sometimes as rupa, feelings, vedana, mind, chitta, and this fourth category, dhammas, which is mostly translated as mental objects, but I've always found that really unsatisfactory. And in Analia's 
new book, he goes into that, actually. It's a little bit more like mental objects, meaning ways you can look at your experience to investigate the nature of reality. Yeah. So it's like the nature of reality behind or that's actually happening all the time as everything we experience is going on. And these four foundations are emphasized because they're always there. They're just one way, it's not the only absolute category, a way that we could kind of look at our experience so that we could get a little bit more of a handle on it. But they're just happening all the time. We could say they make up our experience. You know, as such, for those of you that know a lot about different Buddhist categories, and like the five skandhas, it's just like another scheme like that, really. And there's ways that they map onto each other. So they're happening all the time, and it's our lack of understanding of this experience that leads to our suffering, our reactive suffering. Chogin Trumpa used to say, we're a nuisance in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a little bit less dire, but yeah. We're not wise in them. We haven't gotten friendly enough with that experience to really understand what's going on for us and to be wise with it and kind with it. So because they're right there, they're emphasized very much in Buddhism, and it's a rich field to work with them. Yeah, it's through working with them that we can undo all those tight knots of confusion and contraction and just feeling that dissatisfactoriness, dukkha. So for each of the four foundations, there are four instructions. Yeah, so four on the body, four on feeling, four on the mind, and four on how to investigate this deeper nature of reality. So that gives us 16. And there's one very technical term. Is each group of four is a tetrad. So I'll use that word. It's not a very poetic word, but it's a tetrad. Body tetrad, feeling tetrad, and so on. Of all the 16 instructions, only the first two are exclusively on the breath. And then the rest, then we start to open out into our broader experience. But the breath is always there. It's not like we're going to stop breathing to do the other 14 contemplations. <laughs> you wouldn't get very far. So it's just there as a help to anchor us. And to the degree we've used the mindfulness of breathing as a samatha practice, I think we have that experience of the breath just being there as an aid to being present when we can remember. So just a general note about each of these 16 contemplations. The word contemplation, just to understand that a little more. I'm going to use a lot of Pali words, just because I think it helps to get back to the original word. And I'm not a Pali scholar. So you're going to get not only an American accent, but a New Jersey American accent on all this <laughs> Pali, right? So if you're concerned about that, you probably should go see someone who can tell you how to actually pronounce it correctly. That's my caveat. Don't know. <laughs> so contemplation is anupasana which is the Pali, and it means looking at, viewing, contemplating, consideration or realization. So I think the important thing here is it's not pondering in this kind of very heady way that's cut off from your experience. Yeah, it's actually experiencing, the contemplating that comes from experiencing. It's not intellectually theorizing about things in lieu of experiencing what's happening now. So it doesn't happen outside of what's actually happening right now. So it's not like, wow, if I could just get rid of these thoughts, then I could do this practice. <laughs> and in a way, it's very important. I'll say a little bit more about the attitude towards the practice. But it is what's happening now. It's not what I think should be happening so that I could be doing this right. Very important. And the contemplations are a way of learning from our experience. And an honest which probably means fearless, <laughs> non-acquisitive. 
motivation to just learn is the key to practicing a sutta. So you don't need to leave with a notebook sheet of the things you've realized. Suzuki Roshi had a great, from Zen Center in San Francisco, had a great teaching. You know, beginner's mind. He said, in the expert's mind, there are few possibilities. And in the beginner's mind, there are many. I hate to tell you, I think we're all pretty deluded right now. <laughs> Considering that, if we want to learn something new, we've got to let go of all those deluded frameworks. Sometimes I translate contemplations more as instructions. I like that a little bit more because it connects me back to the Buddha, just sort of saying, try this, you know, try this, it might help. <laughs> and they're all very process-oriented. They're not goal-oriented. It's really interesting. If you look at the language, Thich Nhat Hanh points out that nowhere does it talk in terms of getting into any particular state, like now entering into this dhyana. It doesn't say that at all. At the same time, the things we give attention to help us stabilize the mind so that we can look at our experience a bit more. But there's no goal of saying, well, not until you're in this particular state can you do anything. It's very process-oriented. And that process is how to come into more and more directly what's happening. So if you study the Satipatthana Sutta, there's total consistency between these. They're not at odds, but the Anapanasati is a way to practice the Satipatthana teaching, which is quite broad. It's not necessarily given as one set of meditation instructions. And there's many ways you can practice with Satipatthana, so this is just one of them. But I find its specificity very elegant and doable. So we will work through the 16 contemplations over the course of the retreat. And if you read them at face value, they may not seem that exciting, or they might seem a little bit opaque, like they're there, and it's kind of hard to see, well, what's through them? But we'll explore and then unpack each one. We'll, we'll go into each one together, and so hopefully something of what the Buddha was trying to point to will start to come alive for us. And each contemplation, it's just really bottomless, you know, in terms of how far it goes. So it's not like you'll do the first one on this retreat, then that'll be it for one, and you'll never do one again. You figured out one. We could just keep learning and learn from it. And that's something I've just really, I've been in awe of, actually, I think, because in all my long solitaries for the past several years, been using this as the main framework. Also, just with other people, I think that's one of the things I was saying about this, doing our meditation review process in a group. I mean, just what other people are touching into. Sometimes that's just been like this whole new world of the nature of being human just opens up from what someone else is discovering. So they're just really limitless. The succession of instructions do describe a sequence of cause and effect. There's a pattern of conditionality in there. You know, a certain strand, kind of a nirvanic <laughs> pattern, yeah, a liberative pattern. And so practicing each paves the way for the next. It almost kind of just grows out of, it's like branches just kind of growing out of each other. And then you get the beauty of the whole tree. So they show a path by which wisdom will arise. And while the instructions are quite specific, it's more like as a whole it shows a pattern. So it may not happen, in a way it's organic, so... We could not have these instructions, and if we really just came on to what was happening, we'd have something like the Sutta. Just kind of a description of what would happen if we just really came into awareness of the breath and what was happening with our body, with feelings, with the mind, the whole of our experience. In practicing it, we don't need to perfect one instruction before moving on to the next. And in a way, each of you would probably go at a certain pace with it, right? So we've got a bunch of us. 
and we each need to find our own pace in a sense. But I'm just going to give the teachings so that you have them. You can imagine the Buddha just gave it all in one night. <laughs> and then people have the rest of their lives to kind of work it out. So we'll talk a little bit midway about how to work at your own pace. If it's starting to feel like, okay, you've had enough, you want to go deeper with what you've got already. You know, so we'll talk about that. But over the course of the retreat, we'll do all 16, and then there'll be chances to practice kind of at your own pace that are unled and work more with what you feel like there's benefit with. Over the years, like on one retreat, I'll work up to all 16, and then the next solitaire, I'll kind of start right with one again, and it kind of forms another pattern. And the more familiar I get with it, the more in my daily practice it's easy to do. As a whole, the whole thing deepens. But it, in a way, we might just see what we get from the 16 now, and in a few years, might be something different. We also don't need to practice all 16 like that in a way that's a principle of having the breath there becoming present and then just opening up to what's happening. We won't always be going one by one. And there's what's called a condensed method that we'll introduce at some point, which is a simplification of the 16 or the general principle behind them. I think a retreat setting is a good opportunity to practice all of them. It's probably the best way to get a chance to look at them more systematically. And then in a daily life practice where maybe something simpler might be more beneficial, at least it can be informed by the opportunity to maybe go into each little bit more. And then there are plenty of ways to practice Anapanasati. There are just so many commentaries on working with the breath and awareness in the Buddhist canon. And there are different approaches we could take. The two main books I've used are the practice commentaries by Larry Rosenberg and Buddhadasa Bhikkhu that we've already mentioned. And also I found the new book by Analia on Satipatthana very helpful actually. It's good reference. Not really so poetic, but it's good reference. If you're going to go back and do some exploration. I'd recommend starting with Rosenberg just because I think he really gets the spirit of the practice. So great for skillful effort. So many of us, maybe the longer we've been meditating, the more we need to really work on undoing bad habits there, you know, of making an enemy of our mind and our experience. He's just so good at making friends with your experience and working from there. Buddha Dasa, it's more in the Theravada tradition where there's a little bit more of a disciplined way of working, which has a lot of benefit in it. But I would really recommend that you get grounded in a friendly attitude. Because if you have any bad habits that way, you might just reinforce controlling your experience so you don't actually experience everything. Because some things you find difficult. Which isn't, I'd say, the skillful way to understand what he's teaching, but it just kind of latches onto our habits that way. So I'd recommend starting with Rosenberg and then Buddha Dasa is a good technical reference. And while the sutta is from the Pali Canon, the Theravadan tradition, we can bring an Ekayana approach, an approach informed by the Mahayana spirit and informed by the Vajrayana spirit, which is very much how I practice. Those of you that really love the Theravadan purity, you'll have to just bear with the Mahayana and Vajrayana that's going to come in. <laughs> it's going to leak in. So all these different approaches are just skillful means, they're just upaya to try to get at what's underneath all that packaging. And what's great about the FWBO is fantastic. We have that broad approach. It's one of our great opportunities, I think, in this tradition. I mean, all these different approaches, I think you'd explore them over years. I mean, you don't need to get them all here. So I'll try to give you a sense of the breadth with a D, the broad way in which we can work with the sutta a little bit. Yeah, but I'm not going to try to do it all, really. Okay, so we'll work through the 16 contemplations gradually in the periods of formal meditation, through sitting, walking, even lying down. We'll experiment with the different postures of mindfulness. But mindfulness can be practiced throughout our day. On my recent solitary, I just had an emphasis of keeping a flow of awareness. That was actually probably the main practice. 
and just doing one thing at a time to help that. One thing I encourage you to do is just a spirit of continual practice here. Trying to do just one thing at a time and there's basically nothing we can't be aware of. And if that seems a bit strenuous, just remember there's not something we're trying to fabricate. It's not like we're trying to do our life and then build something on top of it. We're just being aware to what's actually happening. In a way, just being a bit more alive as we do whatever it is we're doing. So during meals, we can just be mindful of the texture of the food, the taste of the food, temperature of the food, that kind of thing. Be mindful of people that prepared it for us, where the food came from, someone we don't even know. Package that food or the sun. We gave it light and the rain watered it or whatever. You know, who knows? Who knows what? Maybe the water came from a sprinkler. Maybe we noticed disliking <laughs> the idea that the water came from a sprinkler, not from the natural rain, whatever it is. We just notice eating. And when we're doing work periods, that's part of the retreat too. So it's not like we have to do a job and do it quickly and hastily and uh, what a bother so I can get back to the retreat. So when you're slicing a carrot, noticing the weight of the carrot, noticing the texture of the skin, noticing as a sharp knife, noticing the pleasure of a sharp knife slicing. It's a dull knife, noticing the dukkha of a dull knife. So whatever we're doing, the Buddha often exhorted his disciples to include all their activities and their practice of mindfulness. And I always love how he includes defecating and urinating. Because if we have any idea of something being spiritual and other things being not spiritual, that kind of breaks that, doesn't it? It's not that there's spiritual things we need to be aware of. It's really just anything we can be aware of. In the Thai forest tradition, when they're teaching people, I talk about, oh, so did you wake up on an in-breath or an out-breath? And so just being mindful of the possibility of doing this in a skillful way that isn't forced or strained or willful. So if you feel like you're getting kind of tight and willful, then just relax and just throw it all out the window and just maybe go for a walk or something and just try to loosen up a bit and then just try to enter into relationship with yourself again. Don't just keep hammering away in this tight, painful way. So you're just doing your best. And it might really be a very skillful thing just to let go of any idea of trying to do anything for a while, you know, just to relax. So the practice starts with having gone to the forest, to the shade of a tree, or to an empty building. So it's purposefully going somewhere to practice, yeah? So I guess other than those of you that happen to live here, a lot of you <laughs> had to quite purposefully come here. You've intentionally come. And so just remembering that we're kind of here by choice and yeah, that we're practicing. And then it says setting mindfulness to the fore. So I'll just say a few words about mindfulness. So it's sati. Mindfulness is sati. Uh, that's the main aspect we'll be emphasizing. There are some other aspects which I'll talk about later on in the retreat, but this is where we're entering in. And this is a present moment awareness that simply notices what's happening without in any way interfering or adding or subtracting or correcting, controlling. So just letting what's happening come into awareness. And things will change of their own accord. We don't need to actually orchestrate all that. So maybe it's helpful to think, well, what's mindfulness by knowing what it's not? So when we're not mindful, we're lost in everything. It's just happening kind of to us and we're lost in it. We're not really aware of what's happening. So things are happening, we're just aware this is what's happening. With broader awareness. So anything can happen within this held in awareness, you could say, held very loosely in awareness. And awareness is just part of our experience. It's actually natural to us. It's not something we have to fabricate. It's more that we've got so many habits that are warding it off. We're not quite prepared to be aware <laughs> and all that entails. 
we do all sorts of things to distract us from what's happening. So it's more like letting go. We don't have to do all those things. We could be a little less anxious and busily covering everything up and just let those things become known to us. So in a way, it's very restful just to let that happen. Let what's happening be what's happening. And the Buddha often spoke about relaxing the exhaustion of running around, running away from what's happening. Okay, so sometimes it said mindfulness is like a mirror in that it just simply reflects what's happening. And the only thing I'd say about that is that could be a little bit of a cold image. So I think if we add to that, that it's also kind. Yeah? And it's emotionally engaged. So I think its other key quality is metta or kindness. It's what's happening and there's just kind of a basic friendliness to what's happening. Doesn't mean we don't have a sense of things that might be more or less helpful to us in the content, you know. So some things we might just sort of try to relax and not fuel so much. And that will come in later. So it's not like it's completely non-discriminating in a way. But the basic attitude towards everything is that we're willing to experience it. We're willing to experience anything. When people speak of feeling alienated, that's a clue that we're holding back from some aspect of our experience. So there's a tension, some trace of tension in there, yeah? So we can create a kind of false peace by blocking off a bit of it. I had an experience with this in our cultural evening on the chairs meeting. There was a certain piece of music which involved three people, two of which were sounding rather pleasant to me and one of which was sounding like nails on a chalkboard. It was awful. The third instrument, I won't say who it was. So I did realize, wow, I can listen to two-thirds of this. Like, I'm capable of actually completely blocking off that third and only listening to two-thirds of this piece of music and enjoying it, you know? So we can do that. We can sort of block off things. And, and I think the danger is not even knowing we're doing it. Actually, you know, it's a tension to do that. So it's very important to be willing to experience. And I think that's one of the efficacies. The great things about the Anapanasati is that by being based in the breath, in a way, it keeps us honest to some degree because we're grounded in the body and an actual experience. So somewhere at least, there's something quite direct happening. So I'll just say a couple more things. Just emphasizing that this non-judgmental attitude is just very, very important in meditation. And in a way, we could take an opportunity to just purify our practice of craving, the craving that we bring to the practice itself, that can just make meditation another source of suffering, a way in which we strengthen our habits of suffering. So you just let yourself have a break from that the best you can. And if you just notice how hard that is, then just be kind towards that. And in a way, you might be used to a manner of meditating in which we're a little bit more directive and controlling about our experience. If something comes up that's classified as unskillful, then we jump in there and we substitute the wholesome for the unwholesome. And actually, there's value to that. But I think one thing we have to be careful about in this, I think we come in this culture with a lot of background conditioning that has some dangers to that. So where we're going to practice here is we're not going to be doing this substituting thing. We're not going to be intervening in that way. The main way we're going to work with our experience is to be willing to experience the main thing. So if you're meditating and what you call a hindrance arises, or a distraction arises. We're going to do the simplest thing, which is to just notice that's happening and to acknowledge it's happening and kindly find the breath again. Sometimes we talk about this in terms of working with a sky-like mind kind of attitude where we don't create more solidity by getting horrified by what's happening and reacting to it. So whatever's happening, it's like clouds moving through the sky. Everything changes. It will change, actually. We can't stop it from changing. It is changing. And 
just try to have a sense of a broader mind in which things can come and go. So by doing that, I think we'll have an experience of that broader mind and increasingly be able to trust that. So first we might just experiment with that on faith. So we're going to get started on the body tetrad. Just because we're focusing on the body won't mean that other aspects of our experience aren't happening. So, you know, feelings will be happening and the mind will be doing its thing. So it's not that we're going to try to cut out this other experience. It's just that in the whole stream of our experience as it's flowing, we're going to pay attention to a particular strand of it that's related to all the rest, and it's the breath. So we're just going to come in on the breath. Okay, so in this morning's practice period, we're going to practice the first two contemplations of the body group. Breathing in long, one knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, one knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one knows I breathe out short. So what these two instructions are getting at, in a way he's already said, setting the mindfulness to the fore, always mindful the meditator breathes in, the meditator breathes out. So before we even get to these two instructions, he sort of said come on to the breath, just notice the breath. And then more specifically, he's saying, breathing in long. I know I breathe in long, breathing out long. So really what we're doing here is just becoming aware of the breath. So we're sort of establishing the practice in the breath. And what we're going to do this morning is just help us reawaken in a way, or have a bit fresher <laughs> awareness of the breath. So it can become a little bit habitual how we're aware of the breath. And I think it's quite true to say we all know how to breathe. You know, it's not, it's not something where you're going to have to learn how to breathe here. But in a way, what we want to do is get away from such a habitual relationship to the breath that we don't actually experience it as it's happening. So we have this idea, I'm breathing, and we don't even experience the breath in the body. Satipatthana Sutta says we experience the body in the body, which means we are aware of the physical experience and what's happening with our body. At least that is there. There might be thoughts that cognize what's happening, but we can't not have the part where we're actually aware of the body when we practice the body tetrad. So there's going to be three things we can look at just to help us. There's the location, where in the body is the breath, and there's different ways to approach that. The duration, so is it relatively long or short, and then the quality which is the characteristics, the flavor of the breath. Is it rough, smooth, silky, that kind of thing? Easy or feels difficult, tight? Yeah, and again, all this without thinking there's something that's supposed to be happening, yeah, and then rejecting what is happening because it's not what you think is a spiritual breath. There are all those funny things that we get up to. So we're just going to have a little bit of an exercise where for a few minutes you'll specifically notice the location of the breath. There's different ways to approach location. What we're going to do is just notice where we feel the breath most prominently. And that might move. So it's kind of like, where in the body is the breath now? So as you're breathing, you might notice it first around the nostrils, and then you might notice something happening in the throat. And then you may not notice anything until down in the belly. And it might seem like you don't notice anything at all for a while until the next in-breath. It's whatever you actually notice. You might notice it's your back moving, or you might feel it's your foot in which you notice it in. So it's not so much about human anatomy. We're not doing a human anatomy scientific investigation. It's more just 
where the breath presents itself to your body as it does. And then I'll prompt you to just notice the duration of the breath. We'll just sense it. Does it feel long or short? Again, there's no universal answer. It's not like um, the metric system where there is somewhere, <laughs> there's a definition of what a long and a short breath is and you need to get your ruler out. Yeah? It's just a way to notice what's happening. So the answer doesn't matter whether you classify as long or short. It's just a sense. Does it feel sort of longish or shortish? And there's no right answer really. And actually from sit to sit, the breath's going to change. From moment to moment, it's going to change. And then the last, for a few minutes then, we'll notice the quality. And I'll give you some options for that. Yeah, coarse, rough, energetic, sleepy, those kinds of things. And then we'll go ahead and just do a full sit with one stage on location, one stage on duration, and one stage on quality. While breathing in long, one knows. I breathe in long. While breathing out long, one knows. I breathe out long. While breathing in short, one knows. I breathe in short. While breathing out short, one knows. I breathe out short. I wanted to just make a point about with the quality, when we notice the quality of the breath, we can notice directly. So we don't need words. We don't need to label everything. So in terms of noticing the quality of the breath, we're using the sense of touch within the body. And there's just that direct experience. Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting thing. Well, what's just the texture of roughness or smoothness? That pre exists words really. It's just a direct experience. So we can have that kind of very direct sensing and that might be enough. And it might be that sometimes a simple label might just help us be a little bit more conscious about what's happening as well. So it might be that just noticing, oh, smooth or sleepy in terms of the quality of the breath will help. But I guess the thing is, it's not necessary um, it just might help as an expedient. Yeah, so it is possible to just sense the quality of the breath without having to label it. But it might be that a simple noticing with a word will help. And that's just because that's the way our mind works. We notice things a lot through a thought. A lot of things become conscious. We use thought that way. When we're becoming aware of our experience then, just trying to notice more the experience and then maybe if we note it in any way that that's just helping us come more onto the experience rather than us getting lost in the process of labeling yeah so whether finding the exact right word starts to become a preoccupation yeah in parts of the tradition the nature of reality is sometimes described as signless which means beyond deepest experience really is beyond words so it may be we experience it, but it's kind of ineffable, or it's not that there's a word right there. And we don't need to then get stuck in, you know, searching, searching for a word. We just experience changing, just going with the change, if that makes sense. You could completely ignore everything I say. I think that's fair enough. So if you feel like you kind of have your own thing you want to do in terms of noticing the characteristics of the breath, which is what these two instructions are, you could just kind of go ahead and do it and ignore everything I'm saying. It's fine. But I will give you some things to try just again to help you notice 
a little more freshly what's happening. So kind of breaking out of our habit when maybe we have some habits and we say, okay, become aware of the breath and we just kind of zone into this kind of not too aware thing that we do all the time. And so in a way, by trying something fresh, it's just loosening it all up a bit. So in the first sit then, we'll spend a little time just noticing the breath as it is. And then we'll just notice the duration using the counting. So if that wasn't clear, we're just counting at a steady pace, regular pace, fairly regular. Don't get too worried about that either. And as you're counting, so you're breathing in and counting one, two, maybe that's it, right? Or maybe one, two, three, however long the inhale lasts. And then on the exhale, starting again, one, two, three, four, one. It doesn't matter where you get to. It's just sort of a way to notice the length. So that's it. Counting's very subtle. It's more the breath. It's just a way to help us get in touch with the changing length of the breath. Then we'll just start to explore a little bit just the interrelationship between the breath and the body. So that's the body and the breath are mutually dancing together in a way, and also the mind's in that dance. So the quality of the breath, the body, and the mind are all affecting each other. And it's something that's quite simple in a way. We don't need to make it complicated. We can just notice what's happening. Then for a few moments, we'll just try to do as little as possible in terms of not pushing the breath, hurrying it, or trying to make it a particular way. So just noticing that, letting it be. And then we're really just going to end with letting everything be. Okay, so in the first two contemplations, we're really bringing our attention, aiming it towards the breath, and experiencing the breath. And when the mind wanders off, which it will. We just kindly notice that. And we're really happy that we've noticed that. There's a possibility to be really happy that we've noticed that. It's a moment of mindfulness. One of my favorite teachings I got practicing with Lama Suryadas is this attitude of celebrate every moment of awakening. So if it's that moment where you realize, I'm not aware of the breath at all. <laughs> you just celebrate that moment. Wow. <laughs> I recognize that. And just with a friendly way, just fantastic. The breath is always there, yeah? So just coming back into that. We don't have to create it. It's just there. And so aiming the mind again and noticing its quality. The one other thing I'll say about that is, you know, the more absorbed we get in the breath, the more subtle it gets. Uh, it's the nature of that. So actually we could be being really engaged with the breath. And because of that, we lose it in a way, because it shifts its quality, and then we just don't quite manage to catch it shifting and becoming more subtle. So just to notice that, too, you know, just find that you've totally lost it, in a way it might be a little more subtle, and then just adjusting our attention. So that's likened traditionally to the sound of a gong just fading away, having to follow that, really. And it's very easy when we listen to the gong, we just listen to it, it gets subtler. So... Over the course of the retreat then, when we start with the instructions, breathing in long, one knows I breathe in long, breathing out long, one knows I breathe out long, breathing in short, one knows I breathe in short, breathing out short, one knows I breathe out short. You can kind of come in on that experience through noticing these details. And so we need a combination of some precision in our attention. I think we all know what that state is, where there's no precision and it just feels kind of <laughs> dull and almost painfully dull, yeah. So we need enough precision that there's awareness. And, and then we need a kind of appreciative awareness, 
you know, kind of interest and curiosity about what's happening, even if it's quite difficult. I know some of you are coughing, and so the breath will have that flavor, won't it? But that's what's happening in a way, so we can be kind with it. Yeah, so you can try different ways to kind of stay engaged, and you don't need to have like an entire artillery out to do it, you know. So in a way, it's just a simple thing, like, oh, where is the breath now? So it's a kind of sensing, in a way we've broken it down in a way that might help you be more specific, have that element of precision, but in a way it's just this appreciative sensing. There's one more way of working with location which we're all familiar with, which is just what's traditionally called guarding a point, you know, but just leaving the awareness at one point, right? So like in the fourth stage that we traditionally do, the mindfulness of breathing, where we just leave the awareness at one place. Sometimes it can be quite good to really follow your nose, chest or navel and abdomen and back out again, in breath and out breath, because it's a good way to not miss a moment in a way, so it sort of helps us become present. But after a while you might find that a bit tiring, like it's a little too much action, <laughs> at which point it can be helpful just to rest the awareness at one place. Maybe not, maybe it feels really useful to just keep doing that, or just keep following it, not so orderly, but wherever it appears, right, more organically, where it's most prominent in the body. That might keep working for you. But if it gets tiring, then you can just rest the awareness at one point. And if you feel quite heady, you could choose a point lower in the body, the belly. If you feel quite dull, you might choose a point higher, you know, like around the nostrils, that kind of thing. While breathing in long, one nose, I breathe in long. While breathing out long, one nose, I breathe out long. While breathing in short, one nose, I breathe in short. While breathing out short, one nose, I breathe out short. One trains oneself, sensitive to the whole body, I breathe in. Sensitive to the whole body, I breathe out. One trains oneself, calming the whole body, I breathe in. Calming the whole body, I breathe out. I'm going to keep reading the contemplations to you. I think it's quite nice to hear them, and in a way, I can tell you it makes a big difference when you memorize them, when they're just there for you, because then you can just more organically practice. They just kind of arise when they need to, so we'll just keep hearing them over the retreat. Okay, so we're in, in the body, I hope. Everyone know where your bum is? <laughs> Um, we're in the body group, and we're just taking some time, uh, I think time well spent, to really get established in the body. Um, so the, the first tetrad, so this is that word tetrad, which means a group of four instructions, yeah? So the body tetrad, the first four instructions are initially helping us get established in samatha, or tranquility, or calm, but later on, we will purposefully revisit them from more of a vipassana, bhavana, development of wisdom, intention, or you could say dharma vichaya. Poking around and checking it out in a very kind way, a little more of an investigative, in terms of what's the nature of having a body, what's this being embodied, a little more. But even in the initial bare attention of the body, there is some wisdom about being embodied, that, that just starts coming through, I think. You know, I think it can very much. 
so some of that may be arising. And I won't even say what that is. You'll see how, you can see what happens. It's really helpful to set up the conditions for concentration by bringing us to what's actually happening in our breath and body. And because they're tangible, it's much harder to get lost in a story. I mean, it will happen, but in a way there's something tangible there to come back to. There's something a little bit more findable, you could say, than um, the mind, which is quite slippery and elusive in a way. So we're starting out with something that's a little easier to find. Not to say that it is easy to find, but at least there's a tangible element that we can come on to. And sometimes it can be very hard. You know, someone tells you something like, just be aware of your foot, and it can just seem like, well, what the hell does that mean? Or how do I do that? You know, it can, it can be, seem very abstract, but I think just over time, just keep at it. The body will become better known to you. We'll be a little better friends with it. We had a guy in San Francisco, who's quite new to meditation, decide just to go on one of these two-month retreats at Spirit Rock, which is the um, tradition Jack Cornfields and people like Sharon Salzberg are in. So he went on this two-month intensive, quite new to meditation, and he came back and he said, well, how'd it go, you know, glad to see him still alive. <laughs> and he said, well, after the first month, okay, this guy's been meditating all day for a month, he said, I felt my collar on my neck. And I said, oh, that's what they're talking about in terms of being aware of a bodily sensation. And it was just so, it was great, you know, like real breakthrough moment for him. And it just, he felt his collar against his neck, you know. So we're just working from where we're starting from. And what's a breakthrough is just whatever opens up things for us. So it can, it can take a while to get proficient at just being able to check in with the body, but after time, if you stick with it, I think it's something that will become possible for you. Ayakema in Who Is Myself, a book, Who Is Myself, which is an excellent companion to the kind of work we will be doing on this retreat, she writes about the advantages of practicing mindfulness of the body. And there's three that she names. The first is that... While we practice mindfulness of the body, we are keeping the mind in its place, not allowing it to roam discursively. So it gives the, the mind a home. Yeah. The second advantage is that mindfulness purifies. So if we're actually watching what we are doing, this is, these are direct quotes from her, we cannot in that moment be upset, angry, or greedy. The Buddha counsels us over and over to use the body as a mindfulness object. In the first place, we can feel the body and touch it. We do not have to search for its presence. If we practice in this way, we will realize in a very short time the peacefulness that arises, the absence of all mental turmoil. For how can we be aggravated or desirous or disliking while we are watching what is actually happening? That last question is great. How can we be aggravated or desirous or disliking while we are watching what is actually happening? I don't know what the answer to that is. You can just figure that out today. And thirdly, body mindfulness keeps us in the present moment and eventually we may learn that there is no other moment. Body mindfulness keeps us in the present moment, and eventually we may learn that there is no other moment.
Tenzin Palmo, who spent a long time in a cave, one of the things she says now is that we have nothing else than this present moment. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that we can explore while we're here. Okay, so we already got going on the first two instructions, which was to aim the mind so that we can find the breath, come, coming to the breath, and then just staying with that experience, just experiencing the breath. And then when the mind slips away, as it will, we just re-aim or re-find that breath, which is always there while we're still alive in this life, and experience it again as best we can. Yeah, just do that over and over. The traditional image is, it's like a bee that comes to a flower and when it rests and it's gathering the pollen and just tasting the flower, yeah? So the aiming, coming to, you've got this mind that's buzzing around, and then it lands on the flower and then it just stays there and enjoys that experience. So there's a quality of enjoyment, I think, in there. And uh, it's something to begin to learn to enjoy whatever's happening, even if the content isn't pleasant in a way. This, it is possible. Because of the authenticity of being awake, the satisfaction of just being awake and alive to our life, it's possible to have a sense of satisfaction and enjoyment no matter what the content is. And that's something we'll work with. So we're evoking the the factors that help build stability of mind or samatha, sometimes called the dhyana factors. But when we say once we say dhyana, then everyone starts getting graspy and despondent. So they're just things that help us stabilize the mind. And that's vitaka, which was on your sheet yesterday, aiming the mind, and vichara, which is the experiencing. I love one thing in Buddha Dasabhikkhu's book. He says the Pali and Thai word for this taking in the experience is literally to drink, the word to drink. So it's like we're drinking the experience of the moment, tasting its flavor. So as we're doing this, just to remember, it's not a task. It might feel like a task at the moment, but the opportunity is it's an exploration or a discovery you know, or a waking up to. And with all the instructions we go into, we, we have to be careful about just slipping into an attitude that something's supposed to be happening. Yeah something quite specific is supposed to be happening uh, and getting very rigid with it. Yeah. So just enjoying each instruction as an opportunity to notice, become more awake and alive to our life. And one thing I notice, people here don't tend to bow much after a sit. I mean, you bow when you leave the room. Maybe this is my Zen influence <laughs> being in the Bay Area, but I highly recommend bowing to whatever just happened. So when I'm done sitting, I bow. I actually do three things. I say, may all beings be well. May all beings be free from suffering and may we learn to live in peace. So that's a short transference of merit, you could say. Yeah, it's a short, not getting tight about whether I'm collecting good sits, yeah, for my trophy shelf. So whatever just happened, I just give it away. And then I bow. And the bow is more bowing to the sit. So it's being humble. It's like our calculating ego cannot really judge whether a sit's good or bad anyway. We're such bad judges. We really have no idea. Yeah, We have no we. If you just start out just facing it, that we're all completely deluded, then it's pretty easy to just have fun with your meditation. You know? <laughs> just start out just facing up to it. Yeah. Just, 
face the facts and then go from there, really. And again, this evokes that attitude, Suzuki Roshi's attitude. In the expert's mind, there are a few possibilities. And in the beginner's mind, there are many. Yeah. So it might be a quite a nice thing for you to try, just to bow to whatever just happened. Even if you have no idea what it was. It could be completely, what, like, what? You know, sometimes the bell rings and you think, well, what was that all about, you know? Uh, it's like you come to after being in a coma. <laughs> Don't underestimate. Don't underestimate. Well, it's all just one process. Yeah, that's part of your life, right there. So. And in general, with the body tetrad, there's kind of a middle way, as with everything in Buddhism, right? So it's the middle way between the two extremes of negating the body. You know, so we see that in the Buddha's life, um, where he was doing extreme ascetic practices, right? Nearly dying because of it and thinking, well, this isn't going to work. <laughs> this isn't working. And the other extreme is just completely identifying with everything. Yeah. You know, that can get us into a state of horrified anxiety. And in a way, on retreat, there's, we cut down a lot of what we can worry about. And in some ways, I notice, you know, like whether the heat's right and whether our food's right. And all, it just almost it's like that's what we have left to worry about. Yeah. So somewhere there's awareness that transcends the extremes of contracting around it in these two ways. Yeah. Around pushing it away or around just holding on to the bodily experience. So we have a body. We're aware of it. And we try to do it in this open way. Okay, so sensitive to the whole body. What does that instruction mean? So whole body, sabakaya, I didn't give you that word, but I think it's S-A-B-B-A-K-A-Y-A. So one aspect of this is that the breath is no longer the exclusive object of focus as it was in the first two instructions. Well, even in the first two instructions, we still want to have some broader awareness. In a way, we came right onto the breath and noticing the characteristics of the breath. That was the object of the meditation. And now we're opening up to the whole body and the breath is still there. It's not like we then try to not have a breath. I mean, the breath is there helping us to concentrate, but it's just like it's, it's opening up a bit. Yeah. It's going to imagine like a, a lotus. It needs that feeling of something just opening up. I think something, another phrase that can be quite helpful is having a 360-degree awareness. That simple, just setting that opening can really help people. I think it's because we're so visual. Sight is such a, we're so biased to it. I know people that start losing their sight, they realize all these other senses start really waking up. So I think that's why we're just so forward oriented. Sometimes if I don't do this check of 360 degrees, I realize I'm only kind of aware of the front half of my body in a way, and all my attention's kind of going forward. I'm also quite future oriented. My thoughts almost never go to the past, so that might be it too. So somatically, you know, in the body, I'm kind of forward tilting. But no, I want to rest in the whole body, yeah? So we can have a sense of a 360 degree above and below as well, actually. Sense of awareness opening up. And calming the whole body. Well, there's different ways to think about this. Our, we can think of it as our awareness of the body calming, yeah? So it's our quality of attention or our awareness that comes. And that comes from willing for the body to be as it is without reacting. Yeah. So if we get a twitch or a pain, 
we're quite calm about it in a way. Well, especially with chronic things, I mean, it's kind of interesting where it's kind of always quite painful in a way. And uh, we just experience it without that edge of hysteria that can kind of come in, you yeah? know, we're not, we're not careful. So our awareness can calm. But then also the actual experience of the body, the body itself can seem to calm down and become less distracting. And what's happening there, it's like there's a unification of the body with an overall, much more spacious kind of mindfulness. So in a way it's like we're held in something a bit more spacious, bigger, as opposed to a sense of being quite contracted and tight. Yeah, get the sense of the difference of those two ways of being. I think there's two ways to look at working with the body or our whole experience. And one way of working with ourselves is more of a control or discipline way. And I know that can right away sound either appealing or we have an aversion to it. But it's meant in quite a neutral way. It's just a descriptive way of working. Other times we use the word controlling maybe in a bit more of a discriminating way. But this is just to describe a certain way of working. And then the other one is release. So, so by control... There may be a better word, uh, I'll find a better word the more I think about this, but it's a wise use of discipline. So there's a little bit more structure in there. It's not harsh or forced. And if we use this path, we just need to watch out for when we kind of get it wrong, which is getting quite alienated from our experience. Yeah, so in that case, we're staving off our experience. Uh, we're using control to keep it away. Yeah. And another way of working is release, which is a way of just letting things be and being with things without changing them at all. The far enemy, you could say, of this is just vagueness and even laziness. Again, it's a way of not working with ourselves. We're not quite applying it as a skillful means. Yeah. And I have a little definition here from Alan Wallace in Buddhism with Attitude, which is where I got this. I think this was a good articulation of our options, our strategy options. <laughs> and he says, Mindfulness is a state of stable attention that may be wide open and spacious or tightly focused as one desires. Buddhism offers many methods of training attentional stability that can be categorized into two basic approaches, control and release. The control approach entails being able to focus and sustain attention on a chosen object at will. The goal of the control model is to become master of one's mind. The second approach to meditative stabilization is the release model. Instead of applying specific antidotes to all the toxins in the mind, one simply tries to stop polluting one's mind stream with grasping onto afflictive thoughts and emotion. This can be done quite simply by maintaining one's awareness without distraction and without mental grasping. The technical term for the release model is settling the mind in its natural state. Okay, so the people getting a sense of the difference then? Mm -hmm. Sort of one's a little bit more intervening and correcting, guiding, directive. And the other, that's the control, and the release is a bit more. The whole, ad, the whole way of working is not adding another layer of anxiety or tightness to whatever's happening. Yeah. So we purify by relaxing and letting go of ego grasping. Yeah. So in working with sensitive to the body and calming the body, the whole body, there are these two approaches. And I have to say, Buddha Dasa in his book 
It's not a control <laughs> freak, but <laughs> there's more of that control way of working. And uh, Larry Rosenberg's much more of the release way. I mean, he has Zen background, so that's probably the Zen coming out. Yeah. And in a way, it's great. So we in the FWBO, drawing from the whole tradition, it's like we can be wise and using both as we need them. Sometimes the best thing we can do is really just put energy into focusing on the breath. And that way we did yesterday of really following it continuously, you know, as it goes from the nose right down to the chest, continuously down to the belly, which if the sensation goes down that far, may not, and then continuously out again. That takes a lot of energy, and in a way it's a shorter leash, yeah? But sometimes it's just so great. It's just what we need to do to calm the mind down. It's quite disciplined. In a way, that lets everything relax, yeah? Because the mind just stops. It's running all over the place, which is exhausting. And sometimes we just let it run. Just let, let, just throw the leash away. We just let it run, and in a way it just quiets itself. Something else emerges. In a way, that thinking might still be going on, but it's like another quality of awareness just emerges through that, yeah? So I'd say trying both is the best way to learn your, your kind of artist's palette. You know, it's kind of a, something you can dip into and use. And in a way, you just have to learn how to be skillful with yourself. And also don't assume the same way of doing something will work forever. So that's the nice thing about coming on retreat. You just try something different and realize, oh, I thought I was being really controlling, but actually, <laughs> actually I've been incredibly lazy. Oops. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's just hard to know. I was telling Vijamal a story about this dog I had to walk. Um, I offered to walk my friend's dog. And it was probably the most unpleasant experience I've ever had. This dog, they got it from the pound, so it, it was already very adult. And it had never really been trained. And uh, it was very sweet, I mean, very friendly. You had to love this dog. But it was so all over the place, you know. And they told me, don't let it eat chicken bones, okay? Cause it can choke on them. <laughs> Where I live is um, very urban, and I have just never realized how many chicken bones are lying around the street. I've never <laughs> seen a single chicken bone on the street in my life. But there were like 50 of them all over the place. And this dog was just constantly just running all over the place, kind of finding bones and finding every single one. And I had one of those leashes that retracts, you know? It was awful, just constantly snapping back this dog, and it would be running and then jerked back and running jerked back like half an hour of this. And it was awful, <laughs> but it was for his own good. Um, so that might sound familiar in terms of us meditating. <laughs> it was also kind of comical all the time. You know? I was like, look, I'm trying to do this for your own good. You know? <laughs> okay, so luckily for us, I don't think there's any... Oh, are there chicken bones? We'll have to go and see, yeah. I, don't, I, I kind of feel like there's nothing that will kill us in meditation. <laughs> there's nothing that's actually going to kill us. So, well, it might be useful just to let the leash go, just to see what happens. And we'll try a little bit of that, just to let it go. And then it might be useful just to see what is that rope of mindfulness that sometimes gets spoken about. That is an image that's used, tying our mind with the rope of mindfulness. But is there a way to do that? It isn't really just this awful jerking back, you know, snapping the neck back. Is there a way to have that that's a little bit more helpful? I don't know. We can, we can see. All right, in the control approach then, maybe I'll just start calling it the wise discipline approach. I like that better. Does that sound better? The wise discipline approach. Let's use that. Okay, the wise discipline approach. Well, 
I think the wise discipline approach is always using Patichit Samadpada in a way that's non-suffering, you know, in a way that causes more liberation. Yeah. So here we learn that the breath and the body and the mind influence each other. I'm going to be asking us just to notice what's different along the way as we sit, you know. So we'll do a period of meditation just to notice what's different as we go sit, walk, sit. And just, we're just going to notice that. It will help us. So the breath conditions the body. The body also conditions the breath. Quality of mind conditions the breath, conditions the body. The quality of breath and body condition the mind. They're just in this mutual unfolding. So one way that the whole body calms is by the breath calming. We can do this outside of meditation, help this process along where we're not doing breath exercises. I think breath exercises actually can help the overall context we're working in. So there's two ways to more actively intervene here um, and help things along. One is just strengthening our concentration on the breath. So as we get more concentrated, the breath will change. Awareness changes the quality of breath. So we make an effort to keep our attention with the breath moment by moment unwavering. Yeah, It's like a doorway to something else. It's a doorway into a more spacious experience, a calmer experience. And another way this can be done is by allowing the breaths to lengthen. So this is the allowing the breaths to lengthen is a very important way to put it. Because if we forcibly lengthen the breath, it just makes us tense, which doesn't calm things. So if we relax our holding, if we relax our tenseness, then we can sort of just allow the breath to unfold and it might just be calmer. Maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit lower. Not so contracted, yeah? So it's more not doing than a doing. Yeah. It's more uh, doing as little as possible to breathe, really. Okay, so then in the release approach, there's just letting the body be as it is in each moment. So be willing to experience whatever's going on. Yeah. Discomfort. Actually, I think the hindrances manifest in the body. You know, wanting that state of wanting, craving, that manifests. It has a somatic or a bodily equivalent to it. Not wanting kind of manifests in the body as well. Doubting, not sure if your meditation is going to be worth anything. That can manifest as just the urge to leave the room, that feeling of wanting to get up or, or pass out, one or the other. So there's different ways we could, you could explore. The hindrances manifest in the body. And, and I talked about that way we're working with the hindrances of just simply acknowledging them and actually being willing to experience them, that they are happening. And then after that, then sort of coming back, yeah, as opposed to pushing away that something's even happening, the hindrances are even happening. So in the release model, we can just experience, just be willing for them to be sort of arising. And in a way, if we fully acknowledge these states that take us away from the present moment. In a way, we come back to the present moment because that's what's happening, yeah? So it's kind of Aikido practice. we tricking, tricking what's happening by being friendly with the energy. So having some curiosity or kindness and precision and appreciation there. In a way, we can do it all non-analytically, so we don't need even to analyze hindrances in a way. So 
today, why don't we just experience the body quite directly without needing the analytical bit? So we might just experience that there's some part of the body we're resisting, experiencing, and if that's the case, so it might very well be an emotion or a mental state manifesting, but we can just kind of work with it on a physical level. So this is my body. I don't seem to want to experience my kneecap <laughs> or my elbow or my right nostril, whatever it is. And then just gently softening into whatever it is we're resisting so that we can be sensitive to the whole body, that, that instruction, the whole body. And the breath can help us here. We can just breathe with that part of the body. So in this method, actually, when we calm the reactivity in the mind, it's interesting, the breath tends to change in some way as well. It does tend to change the breath, calm it. Yeah. So we do Larry Rosenberg on this, because I think he's really good on this point. He's talking a little bit more about the first two instructions, but it brings us into the rest of the body. Sometimes the breath is very fine, like silk or satin. It enters and exits freely. How wonderful just to be breathing. At other times it is coarse, more like burlap. It fights its way in and out. Sometimes the breath is so deep and smooth that it affects the whole body, relaxing us profoundly. Other times it's so short and pinched, hurried and agitated, that our minds and bodies are like that, restless and uncomfortable. It's hard to know what comes first, whether the problem is in the breathing, the body, or the mind. Each part conditions the others. As we practice longer, we come to see that these distinctions are false anyway. These supposed parts of us are really just one thing. But the breath is an extremely sensitive psychic barometer. One of the things you learn about this whole process, the conjunction of mind and body, with the breath as a meeting place, is that awareness has an extremely powerful effect on it. This isn't a matter of controlling or attempting to change the breath. But as you pay attention, the quality of the breathing changes, perhaps because thinking is diminished. The breath becomes deeper, finer, silkier, more enjoyable, and the body starts to bear the fruits of that, to become more relaxed. This isn't something to try for. Trying actually prevents it. It just reflects the power of mindfulness. You find yourself growing angry or worried. Your heart starts to pound, your body to grow tense. But if you can just be with the breath for a while, not suppressing the emotion, but breathing with it, all that changes. The mind grows calm. As the breath goes, so goes the body. Something happens when mindfulness touches breathing. Its quality changes for the better. But it is important to emphasize in discussing the art of meditation and the practice as you continue it becomes an art with many subtle nuances that you shouldn't start out with some idea of gaining. This is the deepest paradox in all of meditation. We want to get somewhere. We wouldn't have taken up the practice if we didn't. But the way to get there is to just be fully here. The way to get from point A to point B is to really be at A. When we follow the breathing in hope of becoming something better, we are compromising our connection to the present, which is all we ever have. If your breathing is shallow, your mind and body restless, let them be that way for as long as they need to. Just watch them.
The first law of Buddhism is that everything is constantly changing. No one is saying that the breath should be some particular way all the time. If you find yourself disappointed with your meditation, there's a good chance that some idea of gaining is present. See that and let it go. However your practice seems to you, cherish it just the way it is. You may think that you want it to change, but that act of acceptance is in itself a major change. It has the dynamic power to take your mind into stability and serenity, which are at the core of the first four contemplations.